From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. Today is Friday, May 18th. Last weekend, the Vermont legislature passed a budget for the 2019 fiscal year. That budget is not final. Governor Phil Scott says he'll veto it over a disagreement about the use of one-time money. We'll talk about that more later on. But the overall blueprint here is not likely to change, and it lets us answer a pretty big question. How does the state spend its money? Here's how this is going to work. We're going to talk about each of the major categories in the budget for an amount of time that's proportional to their piece of the pie. The bigger the budget line, the more time they get. I should say before we start that we give full credit to NPR's Planet Money for this format. They did a great show on the federal budget last year. If you want to know more about that, go check it out. For now, we have $5.8 billion to get through in 15 minutes, starting now. First up is human services. The Agency of Human Services encompasses virtually every health program, every public assistance program, its corrections. It's a huge part of what we do. It's what government's about. This is Stephen Klein. I'm the chief fiscal officer for the legislature. Stephen runs what's called the Joint Fiscal Office. Our staff assists the legislature in assessing costs and expenditures, trying to develop the budget and the various tax bills on the arithmetic side, you know, what things add up to, not the drafting side as much. One of the legislators who does draft the budget is Senator Jane Kitchell. I chair the Senate Appropriations Committee, which is responsible for developing the budget on the Senate side. Before I came to the Senate, I was in human services for 35 years and uh, retired as secretary of the agency. So in some ways, that makes it a little bit unique simply because of the experience that I've had with about half of state government. Why have all of these different services under the same agency and under the same budget category? What's the advantage to grouping those things together? Well, frankly, I think the agency has outgrown itself. I actually started work before the agency was created back in Governor Davis's administration. And healthcare was just a very small Medicaid program that provided healthcare coverage for people who are beneficiaries of public assistance or in a nursing home. So when the agency got created, healthcare was just a, a you know a very simple piece. Now, after K through 12, our healthcare spending is the second largest area of spending in the budget. So our healthcare agenda, our whole emphasis on how we pay for healthcare, how we change that system of delivery, I believe that this is only my personal belief, is that we really need to look at that uh, organizational construct because I think that we really should be looking at healthcare as an administrative entity in and of itself. And then the rest of human services, which are more the casework or protection or uh, assistance and so forth, really, I think it compromises that work. It's a complicated problem because there would be real advantages to having to be divided from management point of view and maybe targeting point of view. But there's also issues where the money is pretty much mingled. A lot of the money comes from federal AHS sources. Uh, A lot of it is global commitment that's marbled throughout state government, federal funds, Medicaid funds. And so breaking them apart has its own issues. The Medicaid funding stream is very important in Vermont, and it supports many areas of service that people wouldn't even think about. Um, As a result of our latest waiver, which is called Global Commitment, we have permission to use Medicaid dollars in ways that would not otherwise be permitted. 
So, for example, public health initiatives like mosquito control, we're doing some mental health under what we call managed care investments. So we have, I think it's off the top of my head, maybe $90, $100 million of spending that gets matched with federal dollars, part of it, about 55, 45, 55% is, would be federal dollars. What's allowed and not allowed changes every time we get that waiver renewed. How often is that? About every five years. Just got renewed in the last year or so. And then we have about five years to implement the changes. Global commitment dollars right now are going to Vermont State Hospital. They may not in the long run. You know, there's changes going on there. They've gone to, up until recently, sort of the UVM for training doctors and They're really marbled throughout a lot of human service programs, health programs, because what affects health can be a fairly broad array of programs. Another key part of human services is operating the state's mental health system. And right now, that system is getting ready to see some changes. We hear a lot about the mental health system in Vermont being in a state of crisis. Mike Thayer is VT Digger's healthcare reporter. For me, there was no number that quantified that more clearly this past legislative session than 5,237. And that was a new statistic from the Vermont Association of Hospitals and Health Systems that shows how many days mental health patients spent in hospital emergency rooms in Vermont last year, 5,237 days. And that is specifically and solely because these folks go to the ERs with mental health issues And if they need inpatient treatment, there is nowhere for them to go. We simply don't have enough inpatient beds. We don't have enough staff to handle, but we also don't have enough beds. Obviously, hospitals have been hard hit because these patients have ended up in emergency rooms and have compromised the care for other patients who are there. Law enforcement is, you know, in some areas, they've had deputy sheriffs there in order to provide safety to staff and others. And so in the Senate, a priority for us was to do the second year of increasing salary levels to those employees who are providing those direct treatment and direct service roles to those Vermonters who are suffering from mental illness. And those agencies serve Vermont's serious and persistently mentally ill citizens. So that was another area that we felt really was important and getting more beds online so that we could start making some progress to get people out of emergency rooms where they were not getting the appropriate care. The huge problem that the state has is in this era of limited dollars, how do we address that? These beds are extremely expensive to build and maintain and operate staff. So the idea now is that some of this mental health investment to create more beds would be through private investment, specifically UVM Health System found themselves in a bit of a pickle a few months ago with the Green Mountain Care Board because they had earned a lot more money last year than they said they would. And the Care Board doesn't like that when that happens. (laughs) And so the Care Board said, well, we might cut your rates, which is the uh, prices that the hospital can charge insurers. And of course, the hospital doesn't want that. So the compromise they've come up with tentatively is that UVM will take, I think, something like $20 million dollars that they earned in excess revenue last year and invested in the mental health system. And the way that they propose to do that is to put a new uh, acute inpatient psychiatric facility on the campus of Central Vermont Medical Center in Berlin, which is part of the UVM network. All of this sounds very complicated, but the upshot would be at the end of it, we would end up with more mental health beds, both acute inpatient and secure residential. Additionally, 
because all that would take several years, the state is looking at funding 12 new mental health beds, inpatient beds at the Brattleboro Retreat. And there is $4.5 million allocated in the uh, capital bill that the legislature passed at the end of the session to do just that, to add those 12 beds at the retreat. So this is kind of a multi-year plan, yeah. but some elements of this year's state budget will sort of put the pieces in place for that plan to be implemented. Yeah. So the, you know, there wouldn't be any money, operational money in the budget because they just won't, these things won't be ready. Uh, in time for fiscal 19, but there is money in the capital bill to help the retreat get started on that uh, 12-bed project. It is, no matter what they do, nothing's happening within the next six months, eight months, 10 months. Um, It's one of the frustrating aspects for the folks involved in this system that change does not happen quickly, but the idea is they've got to start somewhere. The next biggest share of the budget is education. When I think about the education budget, generally, I, I sort of break it down into a couple different sections. This is Emily Byrne. I am the chief financial officer for the Agency of Education. I am responsible for constructing the budget for the Agency of Education and also working closely with those who help put the ed fund together. The big chunk of the money that runs through the education fund is spent to operate the school districts and supervisory unions. So that's paying for teachers and then all their staff and the buildings, transportation for kids, all of the associated support services that we know and think about when we think about schools. When you say support services, like what, what does that entail? So it includes both sort of general education for students and also special education to the extent the student require other supports while they're at school. It includes like technical education for CTE centers, adult education and literacy, funds for other programs like the dual enrollment program um, in early college. When you are looking at each of these things, how do you decide how much money goes into the pot? So the majority of the funds that run specifically out of the education fund are determined either through statutory formulas or are established by local voters when they vote on town meeting day for their school budget. Many of the line items specifically in the education fund are not determined by the state. They're determined at the local level or mathematically. So our K-12 system is somewhat different than any other area of spending. Once again, Senator Jane Kitchell. It doesn't go through the Appropriations Committee and isn't vetted at that level. It is vetted and determined by local voters. It's the only area, uh, state budget, that operates that way. And it's a reflection of that old, you know, local decision-making. I'm curious why there aren't other aspects of the budget that are decided at a local level. Why is it just schools? That's historical. Years ago, there used to be uh, overseer of the poor, and that got moved to the state level. And I think there is a bifurcation of public education. Spending is determined locally, but the revenues are raised statewide. Hmm. And the reason for that is because towns have such great variance in ability to raise taxes. And that we experienced the same thing with the old overseer of the poor, that you would have some towns that really didn't had a great demand because they had a poorer population and yet they didn't have the revenues. So that was moved to the state in the late 60s for that reason, because it equalized the hardship or the burden or the demand across all citizens. Education is the one area where that still remains, although you have a lot of municipal spending on roads and the state budget does include 
assistance to towns for, you know, highway aid or bridges. So there's a, a lot of relationships, but ultimately with education, the appropriations committee and appropriations process does not determine the level of spending. Emily said this distinction is a key source of tension right now. I think unlike other funds generally managed by the state, the education fund has this sort of third party driver behind it through local school boards and local decisions being made at town meeting. I think one of the current conversations around the role of state government in funding education is something that there is a current debate around and whether or not the state is in charge of the education fund or if the education fund should be driven by the decisions made by local voters. Next up is transportation. Here's Transportation Secretary Joe Flynn. Clearly, VTrans and and the orange fleet that Vermonters see is the biggest ticket item. That's our maintenance and operations. But we also have project development and delivery, which builds our bridges, paves our roads. We also have approximately $25 million in um, transit money. Uh, We provide funds for the nine providers around the state of Vermont. We have our rail, our aviation and then again, we have the Department of Motor Vehicles and, and the internal cost here in our administration. What about in terms of that winter maintenance? How do you go about preparing for that when it's so weather dependent? How do you figure out how much money you're going to need to spend next year? It is difficult. It's like forecasting overtime, for example. It's, it's how do you know what the pressures are going to be? You don't know how many storms you're going to get. You don't know the severity of the storms. Right now, we don't know what salt pricing will be when it's bid to us. It's a very sort of elastic process. The events are changing. We've had some significant snow events, but we're having many more of these icing events, and they can cost us almost as much money. If we have a winter event that pretty much affects the state, it's almost a million dollars a storm. Next up, protection to persons and property. It's all the regulatory entities plus the criminal justice agencies. Once again, Stephen Klein. It's everything from judiciary, state's attorneys, sheriffs, Defender General to Bishka, Banking and Insurance, Military, and uh, oh, and Agriculture. Yeah, I was almost surprised to see Agriculture on there, to see them kind of in the same category as something like Public Safety. You know, Agriculture serves several purposes. I mean, part of it's an agency that promotes food marketing and agriculture, but a lot of it is also regulatory weights and, you know, trying to figure out how to regulate agriculture. I think it's a mix general government. What are we talking about in that category? It has everything from the tax collection entities to the uh, executive agencies, the governor and secretary of administration to the legislative branch. It, it's stuff that serves all of government, plus it's programs that are designed to serve cities and towns. Does that include the Joint Fiscal Office? Yes, any all the legislative entities. So we're sitting in the general government category, right? Yes, you are. Okay. We spend about $140 million on natural resources. Natural resources would include things that have to do with the environment, have to do with preservation of land and issues like that. Fish and wildlife, agency of natural resources includes forests and parks. Higher education. That is a grant given to the public higher ed institutions in Vermont. Higher ed institutions include the University of Vermont, the Vermont State Colleges, and the Vermont Student Assistance Corporation, or VSAC. 
and everything else. The state has long-term debt, and we pay interest on that debt. Commerce is primarily those that are dealing with the economy, dealing with society in those areas. Labor is the Department of Labor, and they run employment training programs. And then we have a category which we call other bills, where bill, sometimes appropriations are passed outside of the budget itself, and we have to attract those. That's it. That is the $5.8 billion budget that passed last week. But before anything else can happen, the legislature needs to resolve a $33 million disagreement with the governor. Our editor, Colin Mine, is here to explain. Let me just start the clock on this $33 million. Colin, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Mike. Wow. That's $33 million. So relative to the entire budget, we're not talking about a huge quantity of money, but there's a lot of significance in what's going on with that money right now. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the only thing that's being talked about right now. The administration and uh, lawmakers are coming back next week, and that's what it's all about, is that $33 million. How do lawmakers want to handle that $33 million? Well, Scott would say they'd like to raise taxes, that uh, they think that what they would call a slight increase in property taxes would create revenue that could pay back the missing money from the education fund. And they also are willing to use a bit of one-time money, but that the one-time money would be about $10 million as opposed to Scott, who wants $58 million. And they just think 58 is way too much. They're not willing to spend that much. And they say that there are better things to do with unexpected revenue that's coming to state coffers this year. Like what? Well, there was a tobacco settlement. So the attorney general's office won a pretty massive settlement against major tobacco companies, uh, brought $35 million that wasn't really expected uh, into the equation. So lawmakers have had various ideas of what to do with that. But mainly what they want to do is pay back teacher and state employee pension funds, um, which is not a terribly sexy political promise, but they say that it's the financially responsible thing to do. Back in the 90s and into the 2000s, we underfunded the teachers' retirement pension payments. The argument that was used at the time was, oh, the value of the investment portfolio would more than offset the underpayment. It absolutely turned out to be faulty, and it's costing us a great deal. And that's why, you know, we felt so committed to getting that retired teacher's liability paid down. And by using one-time money, if we can save taxpayers $100 million in interest, you know, that was our determination that that was in the long-term interest of the state's fiscal health as opposed to using one-time money to support ongoing operational costs. And that's one of the fundamental differences that we have here. When I talk to the kind of budget gurus of the legislature, they laid out this pretty specific protocol for how one-time money is typically dealt with. When you get one-time money and you tend to appropriate it separately into a category for one-time items. And so what we try to do is separate that out just to keep it from our base budget. So when we, we give the legislature a sense of what their spending is going forward and we build long-term pictures of spending, we don't include in that these sort of one-time ups and downs. Are those things you listed out like paying down pensions and uh, proving mental health services and stuff like that. Are those things kind of standard issue uses of one-time money in their view? Yeah, so lawmakers, I think, had uh, more sort of standard ideas of what to do with it. There's a few programs that they thought that they could get started, you know, expenses that were sort of 
you know, using one-time money for one-time expenses, essentially. It's something that people don't want to do is to try to fill structural gaps. So things that are going to come up year after year to sort of throw one-time money at that, because essentially what you're doing is just kicking the can down to the next year. So those were some of the ideas that lawmakers had in their original budget. Governor Scott is proposing something quite different, which is putting a lot of money into uh, not raising taxes this year in the hope that next year they can create savings and pay that money back. Well, they're using one-time money for other things. Uh, there are is uh, this one-time money that you continually refer to uh, is money that I believe is an investment that will be paid back within this five-year period. Uh, again, I'm not sure that they can say the same. So he's calling it investment rather than the use of one-time money, but you know that makes it more politically digestible, perhaps. But it's essentially the same thing. What are the next steps? What happens now? It's hard to say, you know, we've uh, talked to people about what could potentially happen if everyone returns to the state house next week. You know, they maybe sit down for a few days, a few weeks and can't come to a deal. You know, do lawmakers pass a bill that the governor is going to veto again? And then we do this again in two weeks. And again, after that, you know, Scott thinks they can do it in three days. Lawmakers seem to think it's going to take quite a bit longer than that, but we'll be on it. All right. Thanks, Colin. Head to vtdigger.org for coverage of next week's special session. And while you're there, consider chipping in to help support our coverage. We are a nonprofit organization and we rely on reader support. Go to vtdigger.org donate to give during our spring fundraising drive. The Deeper Dig comes out every week. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. Have a nice weekend.